Thank you. And listen, if you're a book reader and you're looking for a book that could help you in that, Tim Keller wrote one called, I think it's Every Good Endeavor or Every Great Endeavor. I always get those mixed up. Um, but Google that. That would be a book that would kind of teach you how to maybe think a little bit bigger as far as your career, your industry, your role in, in the community. Um, but if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 2. That's where we're going to be today. We're just going through a quick Advent series, probably like most churches in the area. What we wanted to do um, from last week, this week, and the next two weeks is kind of look and see where does the gospel, where does Jesus show up in the Christmas carols that we sing all the time? We sing them. We don't even really think about whether the gospel's even in some of the carols, um, but I'd like to look at one today, and it's going to be out of Luke 2. And before you really get settled in, I want you to just think and imagine for a moment, what does peace on earth look like? Because you watch the same news I do. What does peace on earth really look like? I mean, if you're, if you're looking at an album cover or Christmas decor, there's going to be like a picture of a globe when you're thinking of peace on earth, maybe like a dove or two doves, usually like an olive branch somewhere in the picture, and the idea that we should all be getting along, that you and I should get along. Nations should get along. That's what peace on earth means to a lot of people. But is that what it means? I'm not actually convinced that's exactly what it means, that you and I get along. I mean, let's look at what it says in Luke 12. Keep, if you're there at Luke 2, stay at Luke 2, and then I'll read Luke 12 to you. This is something that Jesus said. It gives a lot of people problems, though. He says this in verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He's talking about division. He says, I don't come to bring peace on earth. He says, that's not happening. Isn't that, I mean, this is an interesting and ironic piece of the gospel for, for me, in my mind. It's the very same gospel that glues us together, that brings us tighter, can actually bring division among blood relatives. Isn't that interesting? I mean, have you felt that? Some of you have felt that. I mean, if you're a Christian here, you have probably felt that even in your own family or with those that you used to run tightly with, see division come. So God does not promise this kind of peace on earth with his arrival. That we know, he says straight up. That is not why he came. But he does promise peace on earth. So what kind of peace on earth is God promising us? And I would suggest that it's not a horizontal peace on earth where you and I agree, but it's, it's a vertical one where we stop throwing rocks at God and he adopts us into a family with him. It's a vertical peace on earth. I think that's what we're going to look at in our him and our carol today. And I think theologically, most of us understand, if we're in fact a Christian, that we have peace with God. I think all the way down the row, most of us would say that almost word for word. That we, do we have peace with God by Christ? Yes, we do. But, but our gut doesn't always agree with the same way that our head thinks, right? Theologically, we could read something on paper and nod, or we could write something on paper and agree with it, but our gut doesn't really follow hard after. I mean, peace on earth, for a lot of us, peace with God, it kind of feels like a shirt that doesn't fit right. It has the right size on the label, but it doesn't fit like it's supposed to. We feel like we have mostly peace with God, but not total peace with God. 
a little bit off. And this is why a lot of us, we walk in fear before God. Theologically, we know that we don't have to, but it's not something that we've really been able to let go of because whenever we think of God, we see a disappointed version of God, a God that looks at us with great disappointment, very stern, terse lip, waiting for us to become more enjoyable and more lovable as a people. And so I think this Christmas carol is going to help us today. It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I don't know if you know this, but according to Spotify, that is the 12th most popular Christmas carol of all time, right? Which is about right. (laughs) Meaning there's about 11 others that I would rather sing than that one. It's why none of you know any of the words, because you're in the same boat that I'm in. We just had a Christmas party with our HOA the other day, and Hark the Herald Angels Sing was on page five, way at the end, and it only had like two stanzas, because no one cares about that song as much. It has been in 68 movies, though, IMDb said. I was pretty fascinated with that. But this is the carol that you sing when you're all out of your favorite carols, and it's the one that if you don't have a song sheet to sing through it with, and you start humming really quick, right? It's the song that everyone knows how to hum to, but nobody really knows the stanzas and the verses. And truth be told, you should feel okay about that because it was never even meant to be a Christmas song. That was actually built and engineered and written to be an Easter song. Charles Wesley wrote that almost 300 years ago. Charles Wesley was the brother of John Wesley. They were the two famous Wesley brothers that started what we know of today as Methodism or the Methodist denomination. And Charles Wesley was the hymn and carol writer out of the two of them. In fact, he wrote 7,000, 7,000 hymns. Let that sink in. What have you done 7,000 times? I've not written anything 7,000 times besides maybe my signature and LOL. Those two things aside, probably not done anything 7,000 times, but he built these carols to teach theology, to teach theology, actually to teach the gospel. And when he first wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the original title, fascinating. Ready? Waiting for it? Hark how all the welkin rings. Do you know what a welkin is? Exactly. This is why his best friend, George Whitfield, right? I don't know if some of you knew, they were best friends. George Whitfield, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, waited for Charles to not be looking, and then he went over and he changed the title. He changed it. Almost as a joke, to hark what we know the herald angels sing. And his reasoning was is because, hey, Charles, no one knows what a welkin is, and that's just weird, right? A welkin is an expanse in the sky like the heavens. And not even George knew what that meant. He had to look it up. So he did what a good friend did. That's what good friends do. They swoop in and they save you from making an idiot out of yourself, right? And everyone giving you a nickname. So now it is what we have. It was supposed to be a much slower, more somber song as well. So, you know, a couple composers got a hold of it over time. And they put their own spin and their own recipe on it. And now we have not a somber Chris, or not a somber Easter song, but a very festive Christmas song. That's what we have. But now, regardless of who covers it on your Pandora station, it was written to reflect the gospel proclamation to mankind. It was written to teach theology. Jesus isn't just buried in this carol. He is out loud. He is the central character of it. We're going to find this in Luke 2, right? Because this is a carol about him first and foremost. So look at Luke 2. I'm going to jump in in verse 8. And it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, there, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Okay, so this angelic host is saying, fear not, fear not, because they were fearful. Fear had gripped them, what they were seeing, what they were experiencing. Fear not, for peace is here, and he's right around the corner. Peace is here, he's a person. This otherworldly announcement that was coming was introducing peace on earth, not just to these men, but to all of mankind. And this is important, because up until this point, peace didn't exist with man. Fear ran it all. I mean, our hearts were run by chaos, not peace. Right? Mankind had always been about the business of trying to clean itself and make itself more lovable. I mean, I want you to just consider the trajectory of the Bible, just the trajectory from the garden to today. <clears throat> Adam sins, Eve sin, and then they cover themselves, and because their covering was inadequate, then they hide in a bush to cover themselves even more. Why? To make themselves more likable, more acceptable, more approved, more enjoyable, more welcome. But it didn't work, right? Keep reading throughout the Bible and you will start to trip on the judges who will lead the nation of Israel to be what? More likable before God. But it doesn't work. Then come kings later on that will lead the nation of Israel to be more likable and lovable by God, but it doesn't work. And then laws come in, and then you've got sacrifices that come in to do what? To make a people more lovable before God, but it just doesn't work. This night, this night, it all finds its end. It finds its end on this night when angels introduce a peace, a new peace, and his peace is coming through a child. Now, God's pleasure is resting and his favor is resting on those whom he loves. No more sacrifices. He's the last sacrifice. No more priests. He's the last priest. No more judges. No more kings. He's the last. It finds its stop in him. And now, God has favor on people and he smiles upon his own. Now he's not waiting for us to be more lovable. He's not waiting for us to be more likable or enjoyable. He loves us as we are his kids. This is what the first and the fourth verse sing in this song. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man to men appear. Jesus our Emmanuel is here. And I think some of you at this point are thinking, I get this. Peace on earth is Jesus, and Jesus is peace on earth. But, I mean, I'm with you. I'm asking the same question. How is this portable? How do we carry a moment like this in the Bible, Luke 2, or a song like this? How do we carry it into our anxieties or our depressions? 
How do we carry it into the cubicle? How do we carry it into date night? How do we carry it into how we handle our money or our mouth or our eyes? Or how does it matter in our normal day to day, right? Because I think it's an important question for us to ask as a church. It's hard for me to read Luke 2 without thinking Christmas immediately. Maybe it's the same thing with you. With you. As soon as I see swaddling cloth, it's over. I'm thinking Christmas. Or manger. Or shepherds. Or flock. I'm thinking of Christmas sweaters and Amazon cards and Bing Crosby and snow. I'm thinking of all these things. I mean, Christmas in America has somewhat hijacked this passage, even accidentally. But the thing it's good for us to know, especially through a song, a care like that, is this is one of the highest moments of Christology we have in the Bible. Christology is just a fancy word for the theology of Christ, the theology of Jesus. This is one of the epic foundation stones of all of Christology happening right in front of our eyes. God enters his creation to dwell as man, with man, for man. It's all happening. Verse 5 of the song says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life around he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And then the sixth, mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's why he was born. The cross was why he was born. The gospel story is why he came. Jesus was born to raise mankind from death, give them a second birth, bring them into a family. And now, because God has come, you can let go of fear and you can actually embrace peace for the very first time. You can do this because God takes great pleasure in you. If you are a son or a daughter of the king, he takes great pleasure in you. Great pleasure in you. Smiles ear to ear when he considers you, when he thinks about you. Here's the problem, big problem that I have with this text. I just don't believe it. I refuse to believe this. I refuse this kind of peace. I refuse this rest. I refuse this joy. I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm always fearful that I am not always enjoyable, that I'm not always lovable, that God is not always pleased with me. Not like I am right now. I mean, there's got to be some cleaning, right? I'm not lovable enough. I'm not enjoyable enough. I'm not approved enough. I'm just not enough. That's where I struggle with this passage. Now, theologically, we all know that we're lovable. But again, our gut doesn't always agree with our head, right? Not always. I know it sounds moronic, especially coming from a pastor. But the problem lies with my distant father and Adam, right? That's where it all goes back to. He did the very same thing. Peace was handed to him. Joy was handed to him. All shrink-wrapped in this beautiful creation with no sin bound up in it. And what does he do? He refuses it. He refuses it. And then his progeny refuse it. And then their progeny refuse it all the way down to me so that when my feet hit the ground early in the morning, I start from this place where I have to remind myself of the very same thing I'm reminding you of right now. And that is that God loves me. And, and he likes me. And that he enjoys me. And that his pleasure rests on me. And that he favors me. And that changes everything. I mean, that changes absolutely everything for how a Christian should walk. <clears throat> Just to maybe put a grid that might be helpful for some of you. 
Um, I think the last time I heard this was from some work that Zach Eswine did, who's another pastor and another writer. And he got it from a guy who got it from a guy. And it's one of those things that you've heard taught in different arenas, used different ways, and no one even really knows who to attribute it to, right? But it's considered the waltz of the gospel. And all it is is just there's three main movements that you as Christians go through. If you're a Christian, you have three basic movements that you move through, okay? One of them is confession. We are a people that confess. We confess that there's a mess around us. We talked about this a little bit in our class this morning on lamentations when we went through our spiritual disciplines. But we just confess. We confess that there's crud. Crud that I've done to other people and crud that was done to me, right? And I carry it all to Jesus and say, here it is. Broken people doing broken stuff to me. I do broken stuff to other people. Oftentimes it's happening at the same time, right? And there's just confession. And the confession is just, Lord, there's a mess around me. Some of it's been done, some of it I've done. Here it is. It's there. It's broken. Right? It's confession. That's one of the main movements. The other one is receive. We receive. We receive the love and pleasure of a kind God who cherishes us. We sit at his feet. We see his eyes, his smile as he looks upon us. We rest as children adored by their loving Father, knowing that we're cherished, and he thoughtfully pursues us. We receive. We confess. We receive, and we walk. We walk paths to conform our life to a Jesus-shaped life of obedience. We move and we walk as a people that look like Jesus a little bit, but we look more and more like Jesus as the days go on, right? Now, <clears throat> you'll probably, in your lifetime, see those three movements repeated in 10 different works in 10 different directions, and you can put a lot of teachings around it. I want to look at one little corner of one teaching for us today, and that is predictably here in America, and especially us in the Deep South, we drop one of these movements. We drop receive. We go straight from confession to walk. We confess that there's a mess around us, people hurt us, and we hurt other people, and then we go right about performing and obeying and behaving, right? We go straight from confession to walking. This develops a Christian that has a hard time resting because we don't feel like God has pleasure in us, not yet. The shirt doesn't totally fit. We don't see a smile. We obey, but we're driven to obedience, not drawn to it, and there's a difference, right? When you're driven to something versus when you're drawn to it. When I started trying to get real healthy with how I was eating uh, several years ago, I was driven to kale, right? Driven to it. I agreed with, with uh, Gaffigan, the comedian, whenever he said it tasted like bug spray. The first time I started eating kale, I thought, this is like bug spray. He's, he's nailed it. I don't know. I've never eaten bug spray, but this is what it is. But over time, I've just, I'm drawn to it. I don't know what it is. Call me crazy. I like the taste of kale, right? There are some books that I read that I'm driven to it. I have to read those books. I don't even want to read them. I have to read them because it's defining what other people think. Or I have to read it because it just happens to be what the masses are reading right now. And it's helpful for me to know what the masses are thinking, what, what they're learning, right? Things I have to read. But then there's things that I'm drawn to read, just as it is in obedience. There are differences between things you do that you were driven to and things that you do that you were drawn to. I think confessing the mess around us Moving forward without this felt smile of God, the peace of God on us, that's an absolutely excruciating way to live. It's an excruciating way to live. It's not a small thing. I mean, this carol that was written 
to bring peace on earth to us. It's not just a few words, right? Why do we do this? Why do we drop that out, the receive? Why do we go straight from confessing that we're on a broken planet with broken things done to us and now we're broken to just trying to muscle through this existence? I think we do it because we're internally convinced, just like everyone that came before us, that God enjoys us when we're enjoyable. And he loves us when we're lovable. And he approves us when we are approvable. So we are driven to become those things. Not drawn, driven to become those things. But how's that going? Being lovable is a hard thing to find, isn't it? Being likable doesn't always come easy. And what about that thing that you did back in that day? It's hard to overlook that. What about the thing you're still doing? The thing you're addicted to? What about the thing you can't do? The thing you've not been able to do? I mean, can you picture God's smile on you at the same time as the mess around you? Can you picture that? You're broken and you've done broken things and you sit at Jesus' lap and he's looking at you. What does his face look like? Does he adore you or is he waiting on you? Is his patience running out with you? Or does he love you and like you? What does it look like? Some of us, we have no joy in our lives. It's not because we haven't tried either, right? We've made attempts at being joyful. We've tried to be joyful, but yet fear is still there. Chaos still there. Fear that God is displeased with us. Not just with the stuff we do, but with us. Just displeased with us as people. Fear that there's not really mercy for us because that thing we did was too bad. Fear that we don't read enough, pray enough, love enough, do enough, that we're not enough. Fear that in a sea of approved and loved and likable people, we're just there and our shirt doesn't fit. We're kind of there, but not really. So our struggle's actually twofold. One is that we believe God is incapable of liking us and favoring us, and then the second is we feel that we can change his view with our obedience. Both those are failures, right? I know it feels like I've taken you guys and ripped you away from this Christmas carol, right? Like we're not talking about it anymore. But consider for a fact that these angels, they did not appear before the elite performers, behaviors, and obeyers, but with dirty shepherds, exiles, the ones that were unlovable, unlikable, not approved, not enjoyed. That's where this is going down the dirtiest bunch they could find. The shepherd was the ultimate unfavored, and God did not take a wrong turn by sending the angels here. They represent us. That's a representation of the gospel coming to us, unfavored, unlovable, unlikable, and then God finds us. So this isn't just a gospel proclamation that Jesus is born to some shepherds. It's a gospel proclamation to the unlovely here on earth. Mankind has finally found, pe- finally found peace. Right. Here's an image of this. It always pops in my head every time I think about this concept. And it happened to me when I was in kindergarten. I think it's like the only, one of the only memories I even have from kindergarten. But it was some odd, I've never even heard of it since then, but we didn't sit in chairs like 
I guess like normal kindergarten classes do. But they had like a mosaic patchwork of little pieces of carpet all over, right? And you just knew you had your piece of carpet. So whenever she blew her whistle or clapped or whatever she did, I don't even remember, you had to go scurrying to your little square of carpet and sit on it, right? That was considered obedience. Not a bad system, I guess, right? Everyone's sitting on the floor. Everyone's in order, sitting where they always sit, right? So what was cool is there was a really cute girl right next to me on my left. Not to say I was a ladies' man in kindergarten or anything. I just remember that she was really cute. She was really, problem is, is there was a dork that was sitting in between me and the cute girl, right? So I couldn't really sit next to her. I had to kind of sit close to her. So I didn't like this guy. I wanted to sit next to the girl. So when no one was looking one day, I swapped out my piece of carpet with the dweeb's piece of carpet, right? So now I sit next to her whenever she clapped her hands. Next day, she blows her whistle or claps her hands. Everyone goes screaming to their carpet. I'm sitting next to the cute girl. When? But I got in trouble, big trouble. And this was what punishment was in this kindergarten class. They make you change your shirt. You have to take off whatever shirt you came, and they put a different shirt on you called the dirty shirt. The dirty shirt had mud, oil, paint, marker, and a couple rips here and there. And you had to put the shirt on and sit on a tall stool in the corner where everyone can see you and no one was allowed to talk to you. This happened, right? <laughs> a little bit of a different day and age now, right? That'll get you on the news real fast. I was being punished by virtue of shunning. I was being shunned. I was unapproachable, unlikable. I was dirty. Now, if I improved my performance, guess what? I could change back into my clean clothes. I could be different. Awesome system when you think about it. Nothing will get obedience out of a little kid quicker than shame, right? I think some of us, we walk around, and no matter what we're wearing, we have a dirty shirt on. And we put it on ourselves. We're shunned, unlikable, unenjoyable, unlovable, like the shepherds among a sea of much better and lovable people. If you feel dirty and unlovable, Charles Wesley wrote a song for you. We sing it on Christmas. The thing is, is we never really get to the seventh stanza. They ditched that in 1961. That's when you started seeing it disappear from all of work. It took quite a bit of digging to find it, right? This is what was lost in 1961, verse 7. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy heavenly home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. That doesn't even rhyme. <laughs> it doesn't rhyme. It's not Christmassy. That's why they punted on this in 1961. I guarantee it. Someone read it and thought, nah. I mean, there's six other verses, right? I mean, how long are people really going to sing this? They're only going to do like one or two, and then they're done. So they got rid of it. But this, that's why God entered his own creation. They pulled the gospel right out of this carol. He came to break the head of the dragon. That's the only reason there's a Christmas. That's the only reason. Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15 talks about it. In fact, I'll just turn to it right now. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking over mankind and creation. He says, I will put hatred or enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of woman is going to be Jesus. This is speaking of Jesus. It would be Jesus that would crush the enemy. He'd become the dirty. He'd become the unfavored, the unlovable, and the unenjoyable. He would destroy, in that same process, the destroyer of your soul. 
Listen, our peace on earth and mercy mild, it does not come without this. Does not. I mean, Christmas, it finds its full stop here. Christmas does not find its full stop in, in, in a wooden trough, but on a wooden cross. It doesn't find its full stop in a wooden trough with animals around it, but on a cross with beasts around it. That's where it ends. Because before peace, there was war. Before pleasure over us, there was plenty of wrath. And before mercy mild would come, there would be much pain and much suffering. Christmas is a celebration of the gospel, not just Jesus. It's the gospel coming to mankind, not just Jesus. Jesus was born to rescue and redeem creation for the glory of God, and we get to experience this peace. In other words, he's wearing your dirty shirt. He put your dirty shirt on, carried it straight to the cross, and now because of that, he's pleased with you. And he smiles when he thinks about you. I mean, does that do anything? I mean, this is hard. Isn't it nice to know? There's got to be. Isn't it nice to know that there are people that whenever you're not around but your name comes up, they glow? Whether it's a mom or a best friend or people you do life with or a wife or a husband, they glow. They talk well of you. They're excited about you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a character that they see in you that they enjoy. Isn't it nice to know that there are people that do that for you? Hard to imagine that, though, isn't it? It's hard for me to imagine it. I know it's got to be hard for you to imagine. Is it hard to imagine that God does that? That he smiles when he considers you. And he says, oh, yeah, I sure love her. She's great. Great affection for her. I love that guy. He's fantastic. I'm so excited to be his dad. I'm so excited for him to be my son. There's peace. He speaks as a father with peace between him and his kids. It's peace on earth. God smiles on us because of Genesis 3, because of the seventh stanza, because Jesus is the seed of Eve who would come and crush the head of the dragon and be our heroic redeemer so that we would never die but have a second birth Merry Christmas. I mean, think about it. You can't blow it big enough to wipe the smile from his face. You can't. You can't blow it big enough to get the dirty shirt put back on, back in the corner, back where everyone won't talk to you. That, that can't happen. And you can't perform perfectly enough to get him to like you more or love you more. Such an unbelievable announcement. This is such good news. When you ever you, you hear, and I don't know if the angels were singing this. That's what Charles Wesley says. We don't have that in the Bible. It was communicated in some way, spoken, sung. I don't really care. But as you hear the angels communicate this to mankind, can you hear it communicated to you? And not just your head theology, but your gut. The peace is, in fact, on earth. The peace is on earth for you. And you can release fear. And you can have his affection. Man, we need this today so bad. I need it just as bad as these shepherds did. And I've got more explaining it to me than some angels singing. We've got an empty tomb. We've got a bloody cross that sing it even louder than these guys did. So I don't have a whole lot of application. The application I do have is that if you struggle with this feeling of having peace with God, if you struggle with the idea that, that God has pleasure with someone like you, that you're likable, your shirt fits. I want you to ask yourself, maybe it's hard for you to know if you feel this way, but ask yourself, are you driven or are you drawn towards obedience? Writing a check 
to a ministry or a church, or not slandering, or being honest when it's tough to be honest, being sacrificial with your time. I mean, whatever, you fill in the blank. Are you drawn to those things, or do you feel driven to those things? Are you hoping to be likable, or are you doing it from a place of being loved and adored and cherished? Man, it makes a big difference. If it's a struggle for you, what did you do that was so bad? What are you doing that's just so bad that you think that all of Jesus' blood just simply couldn't cover it? That it just wasn't suitable enough for it? Because, friends, there's room to repent here. We can repent for trying to add to what God has done through Jesus. This means repenting not just for the bad things that we do, but even for the good things that we do. What are the good things, the righteous-looking things that you do that you're only doing and you're driven to do so because you want God to like you more? You know you have to repent for those things too because it's a confession that what God has done is just simply not enough. So I've got to add to it. The blood was red. It was a pretty horrendous scene. I know Jesus did a lot on the cross, but he didn't do enough for me. I've got to add to it. I've got to perform. I've got to look a certain way. I've got to obey and do certain things for a certain amount of time without failure then I'm likable. Friend, there's a better way to live, but that's to be repented for all at the same time. Because I can see myself sitting with the shepherds, hearing what the angels are saying, and then thinking in my mind, nah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, come on now. I'm not having all of it. Sure, peace on earth has come. Got it. I'm sure he's going to be great. And I'm sure it's going to be a pretty big deal whenever he dies. And I'm sure it's going to accomplish a lot, but I'm likely to have to add to it to really get him to like me so that I could sit at Jesus' feet and he could like me. I have to repent for that. The first verse is, Hark, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Jesus says, much later on, 30-something years later on, with an adult voice, as a man, he says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Again, he's speaking to you today in 2018, peace he gives to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be full of fear. Peace he gives to you. You keep reading in that passage, you'll see him say it about 16 more times. Peace I give to you. Peace is yours. Peace belongs to you. Peace I give to you. We were meant to walk this way. Drawn to look a different way than the world. Not driven, but drawn. Knowing that whether we fail or succeed, bad day, good day, our Father looks at us and he is excited about us loves us and likes us. Glad we sit at his family table for the meal. Glad for that. Let me pray for you. Go ahead and stand up with me so I can pray for you. And we'll go into worship. And I know we're in snow formation right now. Small crowd and all, but the same rules apply. So during this time of singing where the lights are low, you have a great opportunity to take communion in the back, which is a symbolic picture for us of how, just how, the seed of Eve broke the back of the enemy. 
how, how the enemy's head was crushed as his heel was bruised. We have it expressed in broken, in broken bread and in juice, right, or wine. And so as we take that, take that knowing that you are celebrating in remembrance what God has done and looking forward to a table, like I said, that you get to sit at, not as one tolerated, not as the third step cousin of the family of God, but as chosen heir, as chosen royal blood. You have royal blood in your veins. You belong at that table, not because of how you obey, but because of what Jesus has done, right? And we get to celebrate all of that at the same moment. So ask yourself some of those harder questions as you worship and as you pray and as you go back from time to time to take communion. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so kind and so gentle with us. I thank you, Lord, that you have taken a dirty shirt from us. You have taken all of, all of the shame. You were not approachable. You were not likable. You were not lovable. No one enjoyed you in that moment. You go out of your way to show how mankind treated you. And Father, you did all of that so we could totally and forever be enjoyed and loved and liked and approved and brought close. So we thank you for your gospel. I thank you that it is found even in this carol, this Christmas carol, how the angels would sing from the heavens on that night not just to those shepherds. That was not a fireworks display just for a handful of shepherds. But it was the gospel proclamation to mankind on earth because I was a shepherd that was unapproachable and unloved and unliked. And then you met me. And then you rescued me. Lord, we celebrate that you've done that in us. And we pray, Father, for this city. Even as we worship, we pray for this city. That we would be able to carry this same message, this same gospel proclamation to a city full of shepherds. People not even looking for it. Those shepherds weren't even looking for the gospel and it came to them. I wasn't even looking for the gospel when it came to me. So Father, we love you and we thank you. You're so sweet to us. And it's in your name we pray, amen.